0: Following is a presentation of Cornerstone Bible Church in Virginia Beach. For more information on Cornerstone as well as additional sermon downloads, please visit CBCVirginia.com. Well, good morning. If you would turn in your Bibles to Colossians chapter 1, and I'm going to start reading from verse 15. If uh, if you have, it's found on page 983, by the way, if, if you're using the Bible that's right in front of you. If you have your own Bible, I found an easy way to find it is if you hold your Bible like this with the binder down and you just kind of let it flop open naturally, it'll open to Galatians chapter 3 for some reason, I don't know why, but, and then if you hang a right and go a couple of verses, go through, you know, Ephesians and Philippians and you'll come to Colossians. So, if you're visiting here this morning, you're new to Cornerstone and you don't get that joke, you can ask somebody later. And if you're not visiting, if you've been here and you don't get that joke, come see me. So happy Father's Day as well. Uh, All you awesome dads out there. Uh, In our family, this is not so much Father's Day as it is uh, strawberries and ice cream on waffles for breakfast day. So very exciting things happening around our house. Uh, Unfortunately, I didn't get that for breakfast this morning because I had to be here early. So that's our lunch. But anyway, my name is John Sweeney, if you don't know me, if you're a visitor here. I'm not one of the usual, I'm not the usual teaching elder here, that's Stacy, and uh, so uh, anyway, because of the way vacations and teen camps and things like that lined up, we just thought it'd be a, a good opportunity for me to, to speak a little bit this morning, and uh, so the good news is, if you're a visitor here today, if you come back, anybody you hear will be better than me, so you have that in your favor as well, so. Let's, uh, let's read through uh, the first uh, chapter. I'm going to start with verse 15 uh, of Colossians. I have it up on the screen if you want to read along from there as well. But I would like you to read along because I, th- I think that's good for our minds to get it sunk in. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And you who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him if indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. Let's bow in prayer. Heavenly Father, we're so grateful uh, for this word and for the living word, for your son Jesus, uh, about whom this speaks. And uh, we ask, God, that you would give us your Holy Spirit this morning to walk us through your word, to help us to understand uh, the the magnitude and the depths and the implications for all of this on our lives on a day-to-day basis. We ask, God, that you'd be glorified, uh, that we would uh, walk in obedience uh, to, the, to your great credit and to uh, the expansion of your kingdom. I pray, God, that you would speak through me uh, in spite of myself and that you would um, open our ears to hear your glorious word. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So I wanted to, to start us out... Uh, kind of lay in a little bit of a groundwork, a little bit of a framework for understanding the, the book of Colossians in general, who wrote it, who was, who, who was it written to, uh, some of those things may or may not seem as obvious to you as, as you think, and, uh, and just to kind of help us to understand uh, uh, some background here, to, to put this a little bit into context. Uh, and, and also, my desire is that this not be just an academic exercise for us, but for us to to understand and take into us the excitement and the uh, really the emotion uh, that this ought to bring up in us uh, in a lot of ways that this is more than just kind of head knowledge but this this ought to be life changing uh, for us in a lot of ways. So, where was Colossae? Right, that's the book of Colossians was written to the church that lived in Colossae. So this map I found, uh, don't worry too much about the squiggly arrow lines all over the place. It just depicts, I think, Paul's third missionary journey. So that's not really the important thing, but there are two red circles in there. And uh, so the one on the left on the west is Ephesus. It's a port city uh, in Asia Minor. And uh, so when this letter was written, Paul was in prison in Rome. And so uh, there's a lot of thought that he wrote a few letters all at once and sent them all on their way. So the people who carried this letter would have gone through Ephesus first, most likely, dropped off the letter to the Ephesian church there. So we have the book of Ephesians. And then they would have headed inland, headed east, toward those three cities that are that are kind of circled there. Hierapolis and Laodicea and Colossae. And so, you know, most of us have heard of Laodicea before. It's mentioned in Revelation. Uh, not super favorably, and then uh, of course the, the uh, city of Colossae, so there was a, a group of Christians there uh, living in Colossae. Uh, that church uh, was not started by Paul. Uh, most people think he, he's the one who started all these churches. Notice none of the arrows go through there or anything. He, uh, as far as we know, never even went to Colossae. Uh, he may have you know, later towards the end of his life, but there's really no record of it. And uh, so that church was started by Timothy and Epiphras. Epiphras is mentioned specifically in this book. Uh, he probably lived there or lived in one of those cities. He, he certainly did a lot of work among those three cities, among the Christians there. Uh, so Epaphras was likely visiting Paul in prison and was sharing with him uh, the excitement of what was happening in Colossae. Uh, the church was growing, uh, the, there were new, uh, new believers uh, coming along and that kind of thing. However, uh, especially that time when Christianity was kind of coming out of or replacing pagan uh, thought, uh, especially Greek, uh, you know, this is still the time of the Greco-Roman Empire and all of that. Uh, so, so there was some heretical teaching going on as well. There was this goofy mix of uh, Greek pagan philosophy, some mysticism, and of course Jewish rules and regulations that we've been learning about in, in the book of Galatians uh, that was all kind of conspiring to confuse the new believers there. And so this letter is a, a way of addressing that. A couple of the kind of key important things uh, that were being uh, taught or, or that they believed, many of the people there believed, Again, you know, no way of knowing who was really a Christian and who was just trying to figure all this out and was really still a, a pagan Greek person. But a lot of that line of thinking said a couple of things. One was that Jesus cannot be God, and the reason they thought that was because um, there was in the Greco-Roman mind there was a separation between. Um, uh, between the soul and, and the body, or, or uh, to say the spirit, which would all be kind of perfect and pure, and the flesh, the body, which was not pure, which, was, which was, had evil in it. And so those two things could never come together, and, and that kind of line of thinking led to a lot of other issues, but, but specifically, God therefore could not have come to earth as a human because he had flesh on him, and therefore he was not, he would not be holy, he would not be the holy God, so therefore Jesus as God in the flesh, it just didn't make sense to them that that could be possible, because you can't mix uh, goodness with evil. Uh, And then kind of what came out of that was the teaching that Jesus was really little more than an angel. Uh, He was probably a really great guy and probably had some kind of spiritual power to him. You know, I'm sure word of of his uh, uh, miracles got out and that kind of thing. So he was probably a little more than a human. But anyway, he would not be sufficient for salvation. And so what you needed uh, in place of Jesus was some extra knowledge, some secret knowledge. And so the idea of Gnosticism was born out of that. And the Gnostic belief, that's a, it's a Greek word that means to know. And so you would have to have special knowledge that was only revealed to certain people, people who are Gnostics, of course. Right. And so uh, so if you didn't have that, then you couldn't be saved either. And so how does this apply to us today? Well, today, you know, there are aren't many, if you look through the yellow pages, or well, it shows how old I am, right? If you look, if you Google it, you won't find many uh, Gnostic churches or Gnostic cults advertising themselves around here, right? So we don't really have that, but there are remnants of that belief system that are still alive and well today. If you think of Jehovah's Witnesses or Mormons, they tend to believe that uh, Jesus is not God, that he's kind of an angel. He was created by God, those kinds of things. So, um, so there's that kind of false teaching that lingers today. And in many liberal Christian, uh, you know, mainline uh, liberal churches today, they kind of really play down the idea of, um, of, God, of Jesus having any, any kind of deity associated with him. And uh, you'll hear that borne out sometimes when people say something like, well, we all pray to the same God. All Muslims, Jews, Christians, we're all praying to the same gods. And, and you'll hear that a lot in some of those churches. And, uh, well, how can that be true when they're diametrically opposed to one another? And, and so that's, in a way, that's bringing Jesus down and taking him off of being deity. If he's just another great guy that we can pray to or, or think about, then. Um, so anyway, th- those are some of the ways in which this is still manifested today. And so Paul takes this letter and he refutes this teaching, not really with a, with a point-by-point refutation of those things, but really he paints a broad picture of Jesus as being preeminent, as being supreme, and, and therefore why he is worthy of our worship. Now, just so you know, kind of one, one last little thing is that the, I've probably, and you've probably read over this a hundred times in your life, and, and the same that was true of me too. And then, I don't know, two or three years ago, I heard somebody read this, and they read it in a way that just really struck me. And and, uh, and so I started looking into it, and it really kind of affected my life in a lot of ways, uh, just in terms of uh, of this idea of the preeminence of Christ and the whole fullness of God indwelling, indwelling Jesus. And so I'm hoping, again, that what we'll get out of this is more than just an intellectual exercise, but that you'll get excited about it as I was. I mean, here he is. He is made in the image of the invisible God. He is the firstborn of all creation. He's also the firstborn from among the dead. He holds, well, he created all things, and he holds all things together. That has huge implications to us. And we're going to explore some of these things as we go. So, So let's see what Paul says and how this applies in our lives today. So there are really about six points, and if, if you're taking notes or you're inclined to that kind of thing, I made a little handy uh, outline here. So first thing is, you know, Jesus shows us who God is. In, in verse 15, he says, he is the image of the invisible God. So he just, he shows us that. When I got out of college uh, with my brand new shiny marine engineering degree, I went to go work for a shipyard in Connecticut building nuclear submarines. I got involved in the nuclear submarine program. And, and the Navy nuclear program Program back in the 50s and 60s when it was first started, they decided to build a facility uh, up in the middle of nowhere, up around the Adirondacks somewhere in New York, in a uh, completely godforsaken place for about nine months out of the year when there's snow on the ground. And uh, <clears throat> so sailors would come out of the Navy Nuclear School, typically in Orlando, Florida, and then go to upstate New York and spend about a year up there uh, chiseling their cars out of the snow. And, and this facility had an actual nuclear working nuclear reactor that made steam that would drive the turbines, the, the propulsion turbines and the uh, generator, the turbine generators and all that stuff. And of course, you have to have all the support equipment associated with it. And they would train on that for about a year. With the idea being that when they graduated, they would then get assigned to their boat and they would go off and they would walk into the machinery spaces or into the reactor compartment for the first time. And it was completely familiar to them. Every valve handle, every turbine and generator, every electrical panel was in the exact same spot where they had been training for the last year, year to two years. And so that was, that was because they had spent this time in the prototype. And that was what it was called. Anybody in the Navy say, oh, I'm going to train for the prototype for a year. Everybody knows what that means. Um, so this word uh, in here, he is the image of the invisible God, comes from the Greek word icon, and that's where we, we get the word icon, I-C-O-N, and what it means is it's, it's something, it describes something from a prototype, okay? it's, and the prototype is the original form from which that thing is drawn. And Jesus refers to this in Matthew 22 when uh, they're talking about whether they should pay taxes. Remember the Pharisees come to him and say, hey, should we pay taxes to Caesar or not? And he says, well, bring me a denarius. And he holds it up and he says, whose icon is on here? Whose image is this and whose inscription? And, of course, it's Caesar, and then he goes on with his parable from there. But it's the same word, okay? So whenever you look at a coin and you see, you know, George Washington's face on there, George Washington was the prototype for that icon that's on the coin. In the same way, Jesus has a prototype. And as the image of that prototype, we get to understand exactly what that prototype is. Okay, and so he reflects the Father. So I want to be careful that you don't mishear me on that. Uh, I am not saying that Jesus came from the Father, right? They pre existed together as the Trinity. We have the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit all pre existing from the beginning of eternity which there is no beginning to eternity, to the end of eternity. There's no end to eternity either. So for all time, okay, they have all preexisted. So that's not what this is communicating. What it is communicating is for us as humans here on earth with flesh, you know, we get to see Jesus uh, in the flesh as a prototype. And so he reflects the characteristics of God through his teaching and through his person. And secondly, he, he's a representative of God. He is God's authority in creation, God, it was Jesus was there when all this was spoken, he spoke the world into being, and that's what this teaches here. He grants eternal life or not. He has the authority uh, for judgment as well. So Jesus shows us who God is by being his image. The second thing is that Jesus is supreme over creation. We'll read 15 through 17. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth visible and invisible whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities all things were created through him and for him and he is before all things and in him all things hold together so this word firstborn uh, has has significance here we we hear it a lot uh, throughout scripture. It comes from the word prototokos, which again goes back to a prototype, right? So all these words are tied together. That's where we get our word prototype from. And it can mean a couple of different things. Uh, to be firstborn can mean, well, you're the first one born in your family. Chronologically, you're the oldest son or daughter, right? Uh, which in, in, well, in a, in a lot of Near Eastern, Middle Eastern cultures, but particularly in in throughout Scripture in Judaism, it's very, very important to be, if you're the firstborn, you have rights and privileges and things that that the younger siblings do not have. You also get most of the inheritance uh, from your family in that culture. So very, very important for them to, uh, you know, in that understanding, and, and I think that's probably part of what this means. But there's a second Uh, definition for firstborn, or second understanding of it, and that is that you would be first in position, or first in rank. Okay, so um, Caleb had read Psalm 89, 27, uh, 89 earlier, a bunch of verses, but in verse 27 in particular, and again, this is a, uh, this is a uh, psalm that's speaking really about David directly, but it is a messianic, messianic, psalm, uh, that points ahead, that helps, us th- that helps us to show how Scripture rhymes and how these things uh, happen over, over and over, and really it's referring to Christ. He says, and I will make him, in this regard he's talking about David, uh, the firstborn, the highest of the kings of the earth. So positionally, rank-wise, he is the highest, he is it, he's the firstborn. Uh, so David was that way in a sense, but as a shadow of the real thing uh, of Jesus. So four things come out of that, uh, that that you know we see in here he 's the creator when, when we see the words by him and through him, uh, the second thing is that he is the goal of creation Jesus Jesus is the goal because creation was made for him as well. He is eternal because he 's before all things, and he is its sustainer. all things hold together through him and so kind of kind of a fun thing that I had done as I was I was looking at this I, if you 're given to underlining or writing in your Bible or highlighting or anything like that. Some people aren't, but I am. Uh, my Bible's pretty colorful. So here's that whole passage, and I don't expect you to read it, but look at all the places where he says all things or all creation or everything. It's it's a lot. And uh, so he, he does this on purpose. What he's trying to do is he is addressing the Colossians pagan tendency toward thinking about the cosmos and and the things around us, you know, the the birds and the trees and the stars and the planets, all those things that they were really enthralled by and thought that there was a a lot of mysticism associated with those. Uh, They would assign deities to these things. And so this is what Paul and Epaphras and Timothy and people in the churches are trying to help them to understand is that all those things are false because Christ is preeminent over all of those things. So unlike those little pieces of the cosmos, he is preeminent over all of those things. He is the firstborn, and he is in the image of God. So he, he perfectly reflects God who created all those things. A, uh, one of the commentaries I was reading as I was doing my research for this um, <clears throat> had this great quote in it. It says, Christ is preeminent because God was pleased for the fullness of the cosmos to dwell in him, and through him to reconcile all things in the cosmos all cosmic beings and powers are subject to Christ, and that's, that's exactly what Paul is, uh, is getting after here. So again, this idea of, of supremacy over all creation, that all things, whether in heaven and on earth, uh, principalities, powers, all of those things come under him. The third thing that we learn is that Jesus is the head of the church. In uh, verse 18, uh, he just says that. He says, and he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. Okay? Not much to say here. I think this is a pretty familiar idea to us, but it's such a great reminder to us that Cornerstone, in particular, if we we think about this church, you know, Cornerstone is not Stacy's church. It is not Chris Lowndes' or Jordan's church. It's not the elders' church in any way. It belongs to Christ. He is the one that leads it, and he's given uh, the elders here the privilege of ministering here uh, in his name and in his authority. Uh, but, but it is Christ's church. And so uh, very, very important as we think about the relationship that we have with Jesus and in, in the things that we do. The fourth thing is that, uh, again, Jesus is the firstborn from the dead. So I, I just kind of read it a little bit there in verse 18. He is the head of the body, the church, and he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. So that's kind of a weird term. Okay? We don't talk, it's kind of contradictory, firstborn. From the dead, that seems kind of odd, right? So uh, again, this idea of firstborn means he's first in position or in rank. Uh, so his conquering of death confirms that he is preeminent in everything. I mean, if you've conquered death, what else is there to conquer, right? There's there's really nothing else that's that's stronger than death. Okay, so if you've done that, that's pretty confirming that you are imminent that you that you are um, preeminent in everything, and so. Uh, he is supreme uh, over all the resurrected, which is us. So that's great news, because we are promised to, uh, to be risen again. We are promised uh, to a resurrection, a future resurrection. When we're all dead and gone, he's going to come back, and we'll all be risen again. So this is great news. This is really good news, okay? Because we're all going to be resurrected, and it's because he is the firstborn from the dead. So we can look at him as, as proof, as evidence of that promise. Romans uh, 1, Romans chapter 1, verse 4, he was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. So just a a, a great verse there that kind of helps us understand that, uh, the idea of being firstborn from the dead. The fifth thing is that uh, we find that Jesus is fully God, and and this is kind of where it all kind of comes down to for me. Uh, He says, uh, for in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. So this fullness idea in Gnosticism was actually kind of an important term. It refers to this cluster of spiritual deities that are out there, right? All the stars and moons and all that stuff who have a purely spiritual nature. And so Paul is uh, stressing this fullness of, in Christ in order to counter that belief. So he talks about um, fullness in Christ referring to the totality of God's divine power and his attributes. All things, all creation, everything. Again, there's nothing around that doesn't come under him. Uh, so, you know, verse 19, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell in over in chapter 2, verse 9, it says, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily in Christ. So just again, just thinking about that now, it's it's a little mind-blowing, right? So God, who created the entire universe, who spoke creation into being by simply by the power of his word, who put out the planets out there and all of their moons and and precisely arrange the gravitational pull of each of these things and the the rotation around each of these things it, that, that all kind of still runs together and is held together today. That God dwells fully in Jesus. Wow. I mean, that's that's pretty cool. So, and and so that, that is a great refutation to those who claim that Jesus is a good person or, you know, a good teacher or a good prophet or something like that, but not quite fully God. John chapter 1, he says, you know, in the beginning was the Word and the Word was with God and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things, again, all things were made through him and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and that life was the light of men. Later on in John, in uh, chapter 20, after Jesus has uh, gone to the cross and been buried and been risen again, and all the disciples are hanging out together trying to figure out, what do we do now, What's, what's going on? Thomas makes his famous declaration that, "Look, I'm not going to believe this until I can actually stick my finger in his in his wounds, in his hand, and in his side." And of course, Jesus shows up and puts that all to bed and everything, and kind of calls his bluff and says, "Here you go, Thomas." And so, what does Thomas do? He falls on his knees and he says, "My Lord and my God." And Jesus says to him, "You've believed because you've seen me. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed." And so, he's really Approving and affirming Thomas's declaration of Jesus as fully God, and so again, just a, a great reminder for us. Finally, Jesus is our reconciler so uh, here's where kind of this th- this is where the rubber meets the road for us the The rest of it is all um, well fascinating and should cause us to worship and it's 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 great, but here's where it bears directly on us. Let's read starting with verse uh not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. So these Colossians were alienated. They were hostile in their minds, and they were doing evil deeds. But God came and reconciled them by his death through Jesus. This makes them not alienated, not hostile in mind. This makes them holy blameless and above reproach before him so i don't know about you but i've probably sinned one or ten times this morning so far okay every day i need to know that i am holy and blameless before him even though i do not deserve it but because of his great work uh, that's how we are and so we've we've seen a few things here we've seen that jesus fully represents god in in the creation of all things He fully represents God in the ongoing operation and in the reconciliation of the cosmos and of of us, of all the things around us. Uh, He is the very fullness of God dwelling in Jesus, and the whole fullness of deity dwells in Jesus bodily. Now, knowing those things, that person in whom God dwells fully, he reconciles all things to himself. The cosmos was disrupted since the orderly creation, since its orderly creation, and needed to be reconciled to its creator. And so he did that. The dominions and authorities that were involved in that, in that disruption have been conquered by Christ by His work on the cross. And they are subject to Him now along with all creation, including you, and including me. We are all subject to Him now. Let's reread uh, verse 21, "And you and me who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. You were once alienated. You were once hostile toward God, and you were once doing evil deeds. And if you have not submitted to him in your life, uh, then you are still doing those things. You are still hostile toward him, because you don't have a bone in your body that is inclined toward him without his great work and without his, uh, his reconciliation of us. So, praise be to God, those of us who know him have been reconciled, and those of us who don't know them can be reconciled. In verse 23, though, it says something interesting. It says, in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him, if indeed you continue in the faith. Well, wait a minute. We just got done saying that this is all his work, you know, it's faith. Uh, it's it's all by faith and all that, there's no works involved. Well, this sounds kind of workish to me. I have to continue doing something. It kind of implies that I have some kind of involvement in in here. So let's remember back to Galatians, back to our teaching in Galatians. Uh, Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. The life I live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So what Paul is saying here is nothing different than what he said elsewhere. We continue in the faith, in the faith. In what kind of faith? Well, in true saving faith. And we've been talking about that in Galatians, and in particular, Romans chapter 4. So we're not going to go there right now, but I, I highly commend you this week, maybe. Just spend some time in Galatians, or in Romans chapter 4. Spend some time in Galatians as well. And, uh, and understand, again, that idea of the faith uh, like Abraham that Abrahamic, you know, hang on to, rooted in trust in God to save us, not by works, uh, but just simply by God's, by God's own goodness uh, toward us. Uh, so that's the kind of faith we're talking about. So, so how does this apply? Um, a, a few things just in quick review. He rules over everything. He is before everything. He holds everything together. He's done everything. So imagine for a moment if that wasn't true. And, uh, again, I'll, I'll just think about planets or whatever, you know, and things like that, or, or the Earth. You know, if he wasn't holding us together uh, with gravity on the Earth, and uh, if, uh, I'm j- just thinking about, like, this little platform right here. If this this is made out of some kind of sheet metal or something like that, if, if he wasn't holding this together so that I know right now, and tomorrow that this is going to have the same properties, it's not going to turn to goo and just flop onto the floor and, and we won't, you know, all my stuff is going to go everywhere, or this, this paper here is, is going to turn into something else, or the gas in your car is not going to have the properties it needs to be volatile enough so that when you crank your engine over, it's going to start your car, right? If he doesn't hold all that stuff together, th- there are real practical implications to that. And, and what about our, our own faith? Our faith is from him. He holds us together. You know, he promises that, that he holds us in the palm of his hands, right? If that was not true, where would we be? What could we count on? So you could see how this would just be chaos if it was not for the preeminent Christ who holds all these things together. So think through a moment, you know, what is preeminent in your life? What are the things you have? To what do you give your time? To what do you give your resources? to what do you give your affections, those kinds of things. Uh, If the answer, if your first answer to any of those things is anything other than Christ, then we need to reevaluate. We need to repent and we need to turn toward him and follow him because anything other than Christ as an answer to those things is idolatry. Now, I don't mean to imply that, you know, you can't, run to the store or something because that's not in Christ or you can't, you know, uh, want to go to a ball game or something like that or just do something fun. Uh, but the idea is that all of those things are submitted to Christ and they come under him. And so if, if you have a plan to go do something and, you know, Christ is wanting you to do something else, I'd go with obeying him and, and submitting with those things. And, and so we're holding all those things with an open hand. So we need to repent and follow him. So I'll just close uh, with a, reading a couple verses here. Uh, and having read all of this now and having uh, regained an understanding of the preeminence of Christ, of, of his supremacy in all things, uh, I want to back up a few verses to verse 11, which is a great kind of his, his prayer for the Colossian church. And, and so it, it's our prayer for us today as well. May you be strengthened with all power according to his glorious might. For all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father, who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, forgiveness of sins. Father, thank you for... um, for loving us so much that you would send your son uh, to live on earth, to reflect you, to be your image, your representative, and then to die on our behalf and to reconcile us in our evil and in our sin when we were still sinning, when we were still shaking our fists at you, uh, that you came and reconciled us. Father, we're so grateful for that. Cause us to rejoice in that, cause us to worship you, and help us to walk in that reality day to day.